own homes. They didn't live in houses. They didn't live in towns. They didn't have pastures. They didn't have any kind of uh, agrarian or, or semi-civilized, we would even say, accommodations. They were just wanderers in the desert, having not too long before been slaves in Egypt. But with the book of Joshua, they come into the promised land and actually begin to live in towns, to live in a land like residents, and to uh, start the first process of becoming eventually a nation. Although we should not, in this book of Joshua, think of them yet as really being much of a nation. They're still almost a crowd of strangers who have now come from the desert into the land. I thought it would be helpful this morning to begin with Joshua in a nutshell and just kind of get a quick overview of the book and then we'll look at some of the details. The book of Joshua opens by noting Moses' death, creating continuity with the great emancipator and prophet. God speaks to Moses' successor Joshua, encouraging him to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan, which God will give them. Joshua sends two spies to Jericho to obtain advance intelligence before the assault. A Canaanite prostitute named Rahab assists the spies in exchange for their promise to protect her family later when they take the city. The Israelites cross the Jordan on dry land and camp at a place called Gilgal. There all the men are circumcised according to God's covenant. And there the miracle food that they've had in the desert, manna, which means what is it in Hebrew, stops. The Israelites take Jericho after God brings the walls down. Achan steals some spoils of war against God's direct instruction. And the Israelites, as a result, lose their next assault on a city called Ai. After punishing Achan, they succeed in taking this other city of Ai. At that point, a group of Canaanites called Gibeonites trick the Israelites into making a treaty which sparks a battle with a confederation of other southern cities. God stretches the day and sends a hailstorm, and Israel prevails against this other army that's come against them in the southern part of Canaan. The Israelites proceed to conquer cities up the mountain range in the center of Palestine, all the way to northern Canaan, including a city called Hazor, which some people have called the New York City of ancient Canaan. Although much territory is not yet taken, and that's described in chapter 13, Joshua divides the conquered area among the tribes and designates six cities of refuge or political asylum. We'll talk about that. The priestly tribe of Levi, instead of receiving territory, receives 48 cities with their pasture lands, but no tribal territory as such. After clearing up a misunderstanding with two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan, the Israelites begin to settle in their own designated territories toward the end of the book, which closes with Joshua bringing the people to the place called Shechem for his final address where they renew covenant with Yahweh as their God. So that's a quick overview of the book, and now let's look at some of the details as we go through it. First of all, Roman numeral 1, the entrance into the land as they've come from the wilderness to the Jordan River, which will mark the entrance into the land of Canaan toward the west, moving toward the Mediterranean Sea. First of all, God appears to Joshua in chapter 1. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. You are his successor. You are to lead my people into the land that I've promised to give them. 
I will be with you. I will go before you. I will conquer these people and I will give you the land. It's very clear from the beginning that the conquest of Canaan is not the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. It's God's conquest of Canaan on behalf of the Israelites. Almost all they do is follow along and watch and occasionally fight. And God does everything else. God tells Joshua, the book of the law that I gave to my servant Moses is not to depart from your mouth. You're to meditate on it day and night. Tell the people that if they keep it, I will be with them. If they don't keep it, they'll be very, very sorry. And that comes to pass as well. God tells Joshua, you're going to go into the land and I'll give you the land every place the sole of your foot touches. And then he describes the geographic boundaries. These go from the, the uh, <clears throat> southern end of the desert, south of what is now Israel, all the way to Lebanon on the north, from the Mediterranean Sea on the west, to the, to the uh, Euphrates River on the east. It would include not only what we call Israel today, but also the West Bank. It would include Jordan, it would include uh, Syria, and it would include about half of Iraq. This was the land that God originally gave to Israel. They come to the Jordan River, almost to the Jordan River, and Joshua sends two spies over into Jericho. They're a reconnaissance team. Their business is to check out the enemy before the Israelites move across the Jordan to the first city they're going to assault, which will be Jericho. The spies come to the house of a woman named Rahab, who happens to be a prostitute. I don't know if this is her, it's called her house. I suppose it's the house of prostitution of which she is the madam. But they stay there, and I don't know whether they're there on business or whether they're there for pleasure, but are they, at any rate, they're there. It uh, doesn't say they did anything wrong while they were there. They hide on the roof when the, the, the officials of Jericho come looking for them. They've heard that they're in town. Rahab lies for them and says uh, they left just before sundown. They crossed the river Jordan, and they've headed for the hill country. And so the, the, uh, the opponents send their men out that direction looking for them. Rahab hides the spies under some flax that is cut and laid out to dry on her rooftop, which was a flat rooftop. And uh, she makes a, a bargain with them. In exchange for sparing your lives, I ask you to spare my life and that of my family when you take this city. Because Rahab says, I've heard of your God, and I know that you're going to conquer the city of Jericho. The spies tell her, you'll be safe in your house and anybody who's in the house with you. But if they go outside your house, then we can't be responsible. And in order for us to know where your house is, hang a red cord outside the window. And when we come, we'll spare everybody who's inside the house that has the red cord hanging out the window. And so this is the agreement. Rahab, who is a harlot, is an example of how God sees the heart and not necessarily sees people the way other people see them. She's held up in the New Testament as a model of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And she's held out as an example of godly works in James chapter 2. She's also in the lineage of Jesus Christ as she marries one of the Israelites and becomes an ancestor of King David and eventually of Jesus himself. The spies leave over the side of the wall by a rope and escape back to Joshua, report what they've heard. And the time has come for the Israelites to enter into the promised land. At this point, God has Joshua cross the Jordan and Joshua is given specific instructions what to do. 
The Lord says, tell the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which you remember symbolized the presence of God and was in the most holy place of the tabernacle, have the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant go in front of the army of Israel as you approach the Jordan River, about a thousand yards in front of the army, so that it's clear that that is God's presence and the people are some distance away. Have the priests walk out into the Jordan, which at this point of the year is in flood stage, nearly a mile wide. Have the priests walk out into the Jordan River and stand there holding the ark. When the feet of the priests touch the waters of the Jordan, the Jordan River will automatically dam up somewhere north of where they are. And the water will run off and there will be dry land, just as there was when they crossed the Red Sea. The armies of Israel are to follow behind the ark and cross then past the ark through the dry land to the other side. When they finish crossing all the way across the Jordan with all of the people, all of the army, then the priests carrying the ark step out of the Jordan on the other side, at which point the waters come back and run again as normal. And so Joshua does that, and that's what happens, just as God had said that he would. He instructs the people before the waters have come back, to send one man from each of the twelve tribes and pick up a boulder out of the uh, out of the riverbed. These, I imagine, are as huge as a man could carry. They take these boulders out of the Jordan River, which then becomes covered with water again, and stack them into a memorial. They make a memorial monument out of these twelve big boulders on the side of the Jordan inside the Promised Land. And this will be a sign for all their generations of what God has done in bringing them into the land and how the waters of the Jordan separated for them to cross. This incident with the waters of Jordan separating has perhaps at least three ideas behind it. First of all, it reminds them of of their crossing the Red Sea, and it cements the relationship between Joshua and Moses, who had led them across the Red Sea on dry land. It also reminds them that God is the one who is in charge and doing everything, because they certainly couldn't make the waters pass by by themselves. A second reason may be theological. The great God of Canaan at that time and through most of the Old Testament history is a God they call Baal. In our Bibles we see it B-A-A-L and often call it Baal, but they call it Baal. Baal was a fertility God associated with the harvest. And his, uh, his Godship in Canaan had come about because the Canaanites believed that Baal had once defeated the great God of the sea, which proved that he was the supreme God. And so God defeats the sea by making the water separate in order to show the Canaanites that he's greater than Baal. And then a third reason may have to do with what was called trial by ordeal. Sometimes if a person was uh, questioned about a crime, they would toss them in the river. If they drowned, then they're not they're guilty. If they survive, they must be innocent. And in this little example, God goes into the sea first with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and He doesn't drown. He comes out again safe on the other side, again showing the superiority of Yahweh, the God of Israel, over all of the gods of Canaan. After they cross the sea, they come to a place called Gilgal, and this is still the entrance into the Promised Land. At Gilgal, three things happen that are significant. First of all, they have a circumcision ceremony. And this was not fun, particularly for the men who were involved. But it was very important. God had given the Jews the covenant of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. 
However, after Moses had led the people out of Egypt, they had not been observing this covenant ritual during the time in the wilderness. So for 40 years, there had not been circumcisions. That meant a whole generation of men had grown up who had not had a part in this covenant ceremony. We may say 40 years, what is that? Well, if we go 40 years back from now, we have basically the assassination of President Kennedy. How many men here today were not born when President Kennedy was assassinated? Hold up your hands. Well, maybe a third of the men, something like that. So perhaps it was about that many of of those people or even more. But they have a circumcision which brings them in alignment with the covenant before they go into the land of the covenant. The second thing that happens, they observe the Passover. They have also not observed the Passover during the time in the wilderness. But this was the memorial, you remember, of their being delivered out of Egypt and of the angel passing over their houses when he slayed the Egyptian firstborn in every house. And the third thing that happened was the day after the Passover, they eat grain and bread from the land of Canaan that grew there. And guess what happened in connection with that? The manna stopped. God only sends the manna when they need it. Now that they're in Canaan, the manna stops. And we can make, if we had time, which we don't, many analogies and examples and points to our own lives and applications that God's manna for us comes when we need it. And when we don't need it from Him, then it stops and He gives us other ways of having what we need. But uh, there are so many lessons like that scattered through this book. At Gilgal, then, they circumcise the men, they keep the Passover, the manna stops. And we come now to the conquest of the land, Roman numeral 2. The conquest of the land will be divided in the book of Joshua into several parts. First are the initial battles for two major cities, the city of Jericho and the city of Ai, which is spelled just like you say it, Ai. Then the next part will be the conquest of the southern cities of Canaan, They move up into the central highlands and finally they take a conquest of the northern cities as well. This gives them effective possession of the highlands which run through the center of Palestine north to south. Those who occupy the highlands can usually exercise control over the lowlands because they have a strategic military location from which to operate. And so this is the way it happens through the story of Joshua. The initial battle first involves Jericho. This is the city where Rahab had lived. When they come to near the city of Jericho, God has Joshua go up to inspect the city from a distance, from a near distance personally. As Joshua does this, he's encountered by a man standing with a drawn sword. This man with a drawn sword says to Joshua, uh, or Joshua says to the man with the drawn sword, Who, whose side are you on? Are you on the side of our enemies or are you on our side? And the man with the sword says, I'm not on either side. I'm the captain of the hosts or armies of the Lord. And then he says to Joshua, this is holy ground where you're standing. Take off your sandals. Reminiscent of Moses with a burning bush. This is an appearance of God or perhaps God's angel speaking to Joshua. Joshua is, uh, is touched by this. He takes off his sandals. He makes obeisance. He's very reverent in this presence of God or God's angel. God tells Joshua then, <clears throat> here's the way you're going to take the city of Jericho. On the third day from now, you have the priests. Here come the priests again. You have the priests carrying the ark. Go in front of your army with some guard in front of them and other army behind them. 
and march around the city of Jericho blowing trumpets. On the first day, you do that one time. And you don't raise a sword. You don't make any battle efforts at all. You just walk around the city. And so they do that. The city of Jericho may have been some uh, 200 meters by, or 2,000 meters by 4,000 meters. It's not an enormously huge area to walk. They could easily do this. The second day, they do the same thing. The third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, and seventh day, up to the seventh day, they do the same thing. And on the seventh day, the seven priests blowing trumpets carry the Ark of the Covenant and go in front of the people around the city seven times. And then they blow a long blast on the ram's horn trumpets. The people all shout. And when they shout, the walls of Jericho fall inward at the place where they are. And the armies of Israel just walk straight in all the way around the city, straight in from every direction. This is what God tells Joshua will happen. This is what he does. This is what takes place. God also tells Joshua, the city of Jericho is my possession. I have put my ban on it, B-A-N. In the Hebrew, this is a very important theological word called harem, H-E-R-E-M. It means devoted to God. And so everything in Jericho is devoted to God. That means the gold and the silver and precious things are to be given to God's sanctuary. And everything else is to be destroyed, burned with fire, and all the living creatures in the city, both human and beast, are to be put to death. Because that was the only way they could devote them to God Otherwise, we'll come back a little later and talk about this whole business of the Israelites slaughtering everybody and how that offends our moral sensibilities and something of what was going on there. But for right now, let's just stay with the narrative. So they come in and they take Jericho, they burn the city, they slaughter everybody, and they devote everything to God that is inanimate except what is burned, except one man by the name of Achan sees some things that he thinks are too good to be destroyed. There's a garment, suit of clothes that's made in Babylon. There's a wedge of gold of some considerable size, and he finds what amounted in their measurement to 200 shekels of silver. And Achan thinks, huh, nobody will notice. I'll keep these, and he bears them under his tent. So this is the taking of Jericho. They also saved Rahab and her family, as they had promised to do, And Joshua pronounces a curse on the city of Jericho when they burn it and says this city is never to be rebuilt. And if anyone tries to rebuild it, his oldest son will die the day he lays the foundation and his youngest son will die the day he raises the gates. This comes to pass in the days of Ahab many years later and it's described in the book of Kings of the man who tried to rebuild Jericho and loses two of his sons. This is the ruins of an overgrown area of what used to be Jericho. And I put this picture in because the guy with the shirt in the front here is me, and I just wanted you to see me at Jericho. <laughs> Next picture. This is actually the, the, the tell or the mound over the city of the ruins of the city of Jericho. Jericho was an ancient city, and it was existing at least a thousand years before Abraham. And we don't know where that would be in biblical chronology because we can't date anything before Abraham accurately. But it was at least a thousand years before Abraham. Uh, By the time of Joshua, the city had been there for at least 1,600 years. That means if Joshua were living in our day and we came to Jericho, it would have been there at least since the time of the Roman Empire. So that gives us some idea of the antiquity of this city. There were actually many cities of Jericho because it would be inhabited 
it would be deserted or abandoned or conquered. It would fall into ruins. It would be overgrown. Then they would build a new city on top of it. Then that would happen again. They'd build a new city on top of it. There may have been 12 or more cities of Jericho over several thousand years. In the 1940s, an archaeologist by the name of Garstein, who was a German, excavated the ruins of Jericho, what is called in, in, the, in, the, in the land, they call it uh, Tel Es Salam. No, that's not right. Tel Es Sultan. Garstein found what he called Jericho City Number 4. And this city had uh, walls that seemed to have collapsed in place. It had a city that appeared to have been burned. And there was an indication that there were houses built in the walls of the city. Garstang believed this was the city that Joshua actually conquered. In the 1950s or 60s, 1950s, a British archaeologist by the name of Kathleen Kenyon excavated Jericho. She determined that Garstang's city number four actually came from 150 years earlier than he thought it did. And it wasn't actually what Joshua conquered at all. It was some earlier ruins. The debate goes on about that. Some other people have radiocarbon dated things that they found in Kathleen Kenyon's city and said she was wrong about her dates. So the archaeologists still are, are fighting about whether this is Joshua's city or not. But the important thing for us to know is it doesn't really matter. The Bible is not true because we can prove it by archaeology. We believe it is a matter of faith. So far, archaeology has never found anything that contradicts it. All that archaeology can do is not prove the Bible but show that what they find is not inconsistent with the Bible. And that has been the case always in every instance. After they take the city of Jericho successfully, they go to the next little town. You can leave the picture or move on to the outline to the place, a little town called Ai. The Israelites decide that they can take Ai, we're going to have to speed up, that they can take Ai very quickly because of their success at Jericho. And so they send only 3,000 men up to take the city. These 3,000 men are routed. They sent scurrying away with the other army tailing them. And 36 Israelites are killed. They go back home defeated in spirit. Joshua falls on the ground before God and says, What's wrong? You've forsaken us. What is going to happen? We're going to die in the land. And everybody will say you're not a very good God. God says to Joshua, The reason you couldn't take Ai is because there was sin in the camp. You've not been faithful to my commandments. You're not going to take any more land until you straighten this out. And so Joshua has a, a, a ceremony in which they throw uh, dice or take, throw lots or the Urim and the Thummim, which are two stones in the breastplate of the high priest, serve for this purpose. And they choose a tribe and they pick a particular tribe. Then they pick a particular clan. Then they pick a particular family. Then they pick a particular man. And the man and the family and the clan and the tribe is this fellow named Achan. And Joshua calls him up and says, My son, what have you done? And Achan says, I must confess, I saw a Babylonian garment, some silver and some gold. I didn't think anybody would notice. I buried them in my tent. Joshua says, that won't work. This was devoted to God. You should have destroyed it. Because you didn't, you will be destroyed. And the Israelites take Achan and his family and all of his possessions, stone him, him and his family to death, burn everything he owned, and bury him under a pile of rocks. And this was a very important lesson to Israel. When God says it's devoted to me, you don't stick it in your own pocket. Furthermore, that you don't have God's blessing if you're not in communion with God and living according to His will. And so with that taken care of, they go against Ai again with the entire army. 
they, uh, they bring out the uh, people of Ai after them, chasing them like they're running away again. And there's an ambush of others who stayed behind, who take the city. This time God says, you can keep the spoils of war, but destroy all the people and animals, which they do. And that's the second great city that they take. They build an altar then at a place called Ebal, Ebal, E-B-A-L, a mountain which is next to a mountain called Gerizim. And at Ebal and Gerizim, they read the book of the law and the people promise to be faithful to God's covenant. We come to the southern campaign, Roman numeral 2, in chapters 9 and 10. At this point, a group of Canaanites called Gibeonites, who really didn't live very far away, have heard of Israel and they're scared to death. And they think, we've got to make a peace treaty with these guys before they get to us. And so they take some old moldy bread with them, put on old dirty clothes that are worn out, and uh, take some old wine bottles that are cracking from age, and walk the short distance over to where the Israelites are. And Joshua comes out to meet them, and they say, we're the Gibeonites. We live a very long distance from here. You won't get to us for a long, long time. Look how old our wineskins are. Look how old our clothes are. Look how old our food is. Taste it. It's moldy. And they taste it, and sure enough, it's moldy. And the Gibeonites say, we want to make a peace treaty with you, and we've come this long distance in order to do that. Joshua did not ask God what to do, but he acted on his own and made a treaty with the Gibeonites. And they go home, and he learns later they really just live over the hill. Well, not only does Joshua learn it, but the other Canaanites who live in this area learn it. Jerusalem, which is not very far from Jericho as the crow flies, although quite a higher altitude, Jerusalem is ruled at this time by a king named Adonai Zedek, which may be a, a, a dynastic name because the king of Jerusalem in Abraham's time was named Melchizedek. But Adonai Zedek hears about this. He gathers up the kings of four or five other city-states around him, and they go to war against Gibeon because they don't like what the Gibeonites have done in making a treaty with Israel. Because Joshua has a treaty with Israel, he goes to their defense. With Gibeon, he goes to their defense. And there's a battle between Adonai Zedek and his four confederates and with Joshua and the Israelites and the Gibeonites. The Israelites slaughter these, uh, these other four city-state inhabitants. The kings, they put in a cave and roll a stone in front of the door. I'm sorry, they hang them, hang them from a tree and, uh, and leave them hanging there all day. And at the end of the day, they put them in a cave and roll a stone in front of the door as a memorial. So they take the southern cities and they're moving right along. At this point, the kings of the north hear about the Israelites coming and they come down in a huge confederated army. The kings from central and northern Canaan gather together as the Israelites march north. They come up into central Palestine to this area, which is a valley called Aijalon. And here this huge Canaanite army of many city-states come against the Israelites. The Israelites go into battle against them. Joshua prays for the day to be extended. And the Bible says God stretched the day. He made the sun stand still for a long time. And they had more time to do battle. But it wasn't the battle that really counted because God sent a hailstorm on their enemies. And more of their enemies were killed by hail than were killed by the sword. But this gave them conquest of central Palestine all the way up to northern Palestine because Hazor the city in the north that was called the New York City of Canaan because of its importance was one of the kings in this confederation and they take the land at this point and occupy the central highlands all the way through. God tells them 
<coughs> after this victory, burn all the chariots of your enemies and hamstring all the horses. And we might say, that's strange. Looks like they would use them for their own army. That was the point. God didn't want them to have an army that they might put their trust in instead of Him. And so they wipe out all the, all the chariots and horses, disable the horses of their enemies, so they won't have them and put their trust in these things for their own safety, but rather keep their trust in God. When we come on down a ways in the outline, I believe it mentions a chapter after the northern campaign. In chapter 12, there's a list of defeated kings of cities. These kings are not what we would call great kings. They're kings of city-states. Each little city had its own king. And the Israelites are having to conquer this one little city at a time. Not like they were conquering the whole land all at once. Let's move on to the next part of the outline. In the chapters 13 through 21, there's a distribution of the land among the tribes. Chapters 13 through 19 describe God giving the land by boundaries to the, to the tribes who live in the, in the land of Canaan west of the Jordan in what we now call Israel. You may recall that when they first came out of the wilderness and settled in the east of the Jordan, two and a half tribes said, we want our inheritance on this side of the Jordan. The tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. And so they stayed over there. But Joshua said to them when they did that, part of the deal is you can let your wives and children settle down over here on the east of Jordan, but you have to send your army of all the men with us until we conquer all the rest of the land. And when all of the fighting is over, then you can go home and live with your families. So that's what they do at that point. They, they distribute the rest of the land, though, inside the land of Canaan to the other tribes that live in the land of Palestine itself. If you read these chapters uh, 13 through 19, it sounds almost like a surveyor's document. And it's not particularly interesting unless you have a map with all the details and you're given to look at maps. Uh, some people love to look at maps. Other people, it drives them crazy, just like crossword puzzles or other things. So that's the way they do that. The Levites, however, the priestly tribe, do not get an area of inheritance. Instead, they're given 48 cities. And these are priestly cities or Levitical cities. They also include the pasture land around the cities. Of these 48 cities, six cities are designated as cities of refuge. And these are scattered throughout the land on the east and the west of the Jordan in an area that is the circle represents one day's walking distance. So that everybody living in the promised land is almost within one day's walking distance of one of these cities. The purpose of the city of refuge was a city of political asylum. If someone killed another person accidentally or not intending to commit murder, the city of refuge provided a safe haven until he could have a trial. Normally what would happen if it were not for this, if somebody killed somebody else, that fellow who was killed, his family would take vengeance on the guy who killed him. And then his family would take vengeance on them. And their family would take vengeance on them. And the Hatfields and McCoys of ancient Palestine are at it again. And so the cities of refuge prevent blood feuds running through the family. Because if you kill someone and it is not first degree murder as we might call it. If it was not intentional murder. The person who did it can escape to the city of refuge. Where he also by the way gets a fair trial. Not in the jurisdiction of the family that he was the victim. 
But in the city of refuge, he's protected under the authority of the priests. And he has a trial there. If he's guilty, they execute him. If he's not, he can keep living there in safety until the high priest dies. And when the high priest dies, it's like get out of jail free. And he can go home again and it's okay and nobody better touch him. So the cities of refuge was part of the political system, part of the criminal law system for the protection of those who kill someone inadvertently or accidentally or negligently. Let's take just a moment here in our last six minutes about the moral issue of the conquest of Canaan. We say, how could God command them to kill all these people, just slaughter the men, women, and children? And the, the short answer is, there's not an answer that will satisfy our minds given the advanced state of ethics and morality that we know under Jesus Christ and in modern times. But what we can say is there's some theological issues involved that make some sense out of it even to us. First of all, the Canaanites believed that they lived in the land because their god Baal had given it to them. And so this is really a battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the deity of the Canaanites. And in conquering this land... God is saying, I'm the true God. Your God is no God at all. He didn't give you this land to live in. This is my land. I created the world. Everything is mine. And I'll give it to whomever I please. So that's part of what's going on. It's God showing His sovereignty that He's the Creator God who made the land. And at this particular point in history, for His own purpose and reasons, He's taking the land away from the Canaanites and giving it to His people, whom He will also kick out of the land many centuries later when they are unfaithful to His covenant because the land is His, it's not Israel's. Israel is always a tenant in the land. They're never its owner in fee simple. They didn't come in and get deeds that said this is yours in perpetuity. They got a deed from God in effect that said this is my land, I'm letting you live in it and if you keep obeying me, you'll keep living in it. But if you don't, it's out the door with you. And that's what later happens as we mentioned. Another thing that's important here is that Canaanites were a very immoral and wicked people. Their worship of Baal and other gods and deities of the pagan land in which they lived included both orgiistic uh, worship rites in which they would have drunken orgies, and it also included, which to us sounds more reprehensible, the sacrifice of their infants. And they would offer their babies to their gods, particularly the kings of Moab did this, uh, and some others, and it, it was widespread in the land of Canaan as well. They would have a hollow altar, a hollow statue of their God, a hollow idol, put their child inside it, beat drums very loud to keep from hearing it screams, build a fire under it, and burn it until it was dead. And this is the way they worship their God. And so part of what's happening here is God's judgment on the wickedness of Canaan, which He had told Abraham back in Genesis 15, Hundreds of years from now, your descendants will be given this land, but the iniquity of the Amorites, or the Westerners, is not yet full. But by the time of Joshua, God said, I've had all I can take of their wickedness, and I'm punishing them for it. Remember again, Israel is punished when they sin just as well. Finally, Roman numeral 4, in the last part of Joshua, has a couple of stories about tribal unity and loyalty to Yahweh. After they've essentially taken the central highlands of the land, distributed it in theory among the tribes, they're saying to themselves, it's over for now. They didn't take all the cities. They didn't take the seacoast 
where the Philistines are moving into about this same time. And they'll have trouble out of them for many years to come. But they did take most of the land and they, they feel the conquest is essentially over. At this point, the tribes in the land of Canaan realize that the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, who live east of the Jordan, have built a, a huge memorial altar by the Jordan River just inside the land of Canaan. And they come over to these two and a half tribes with great anger and they say, what are you trying to do? Are you building a competitive worship place to the place that God has ordained for His priest? If you are, you're rebelling against God and we'll have to go to war against you. The tribes from east of the Jordan say, no, we're not doing that at all. We're faithful to Yahweh. The reason we built this memorial is to remind our children that we're part of Israel and what God has done and to remind your descendants in the later years, if they say to our people, you live on the other side of the Jordan, you're not part of our people, to remind them, yes, we are part of your people. We came into the land and helped you take it. We just have our inheritance partly on the other side of the Jordan. And so Joshua says, that's okay if that's the purpose. This memorial is a memorial to the true God, and we don't have a war against you after all. And then in the final chapters of Joshua, Joshua gives his farewell in chapter 23, and he recites to the people briefly what God has done for them. And he says to them, be faithful to God, don't forget His covenant, and He will give you good success. And then there's a covenant renewal ceremony in chapter 24, at which time Joshua says to the people in more detail, God has brought you out of Egypt. He led you through the wilderness. He did these miracles for you. He's brought you across the Jordan River on dry land. He's given you the land of Canaan. Keep His covenant. Throw away the idols, the gods that your father served, and, and the gods of this land. Don't worship them. If you do, God will punish you and take you out of this land. But he says in a stirring speech, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers who are beyond the river, the gods of Mesopotamia in the time of Abraham, or the gods of this land. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. We will serve the Lord. And the people all say, we will serve God too. And Joshua says, you think you will, you really won't be faithful. But the book ends with this call to faithfulness to God and the, and the confession of Joshua, or the affirmation of faith of Joshua, that his house will serve the Lord. The, the, the word to us is, I think, through this book, God is the one who is sovereign. Our battles in life, God is the one who gives us the victory. We may do lots of things, but it wouldn't happen without God. God's blessings are tied in with His uh, covenant and our faithfulness to God is the way to enjoy His blessings at their fullest. If we sin, God will deal with us and discipline us even as His children and bring us back into line. But we need to make the commitment as Joshua did at the end, as for me and my house. And on Father's Day, those who are fathers can say this for sure and others join in with them. We will serve the Lord. It's 12 o'clock. That's the book of Joshua. Come back next week. We'll have the book of Judges. Thank you very much.